Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. We are going through a small series. Normally, Grayson and I are preaching he through the Psalms and me through the book of Acts, but we took this break and we're starting to come to the end of it. What we wanted to do was explain to you, as you well know, what is the gospel and how to share the gospel. And so we broke it down into four constituent parts. What is the problem? What is the solution? What are the commands? And what are the blessings? Then what we did was we began to show you various groups and how they're, what they call a gospel is in fact not a gospel. It's a gospel that damns the soul. And today we're going to look at the Jehovah Witnesses. And so the first portion of the sermon is simply me unfolding for you what it is that the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. And of course, I can't give it to the fullness, but I want to touch on the key parts. And so we want to understand the gospel according to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Many of you are acquainted with them uh, simply because they've come to visit your home or They've left material in some lobby, such as a doctor or dentist's office. Many see this group as maybe a quirky sort of subset or sect of the Christian faith, or because of today's culture of vague truth, they're actually flat out embraced by many as if they are true Christians. They're a very aggressive group, especially overseas, and like the Mormons, have made many, many inroads in various cultures wherever the Bible doctrine is taught poorly. By way of an example, when I was in Ethiopia, uh, I asked my uh, translator and others, what else could we teach them and train the pastors in that would be of help? And they said, without a single moment's hesitation, teach us about the Trinity. And the reason is because of the uh, oneness, apostolic oneness Pentecostals uh, that are major a group there, as well as the Jehovah Witnesses. I uh, myself remember as a young teen, and those of you older might recall this, back in 1975, we had a neighbor uh, down the road. And uh, on 1975, the end of the world was to come, uh, according to the Watchtower Society. And so they actually got picnic blankets and climbed up a ladder onto the roof and, and stayed up on the roof the whole day, waiting for the end of the world. And it was only until evening had come and, and it was now dark that they quietly climbed back down. And it was just one of many failed prophecies that have played themselves out by the Watchtower Society. But I remember that to this day, just looking at them, and they were so sincere and then so shamed at the end. But no matter how you view the Jehovah's Witnesses, the issue really only has is this. It has to come down to what they view as a problem with this world. 
What is the problem with you and me? Then what is the solution to the problem? And what are the commands in relationship to that solution? And are there any kinds of promised blessings attached to that? In other words, what is the gospel? And you will find essentially every single religion other than the Christian faith will ultimately tell you either there is no real problem or that the solution is somehow through your efforts. There is either no real problem or to fix the problem, it's up to you. And the Christian faith makes it very clear that we do have a sin problem, but that problem is something we cannot solve or even help solve. Rather, it is a work of God from beginning to end. And so when you have groups claiming to be Christian or truly biblical, what you do is you want to ask them a simple question. This question would be this. What part does Jesus Christ play in your salvation? What part does Jesus Christ play in your salvation? And then no matter what they ask, ask them to elaborate. And ask them, so what's that mean? Fill in the blanks. Enlarge on that a little bit. You want to hear what is their hope. Does it begin with Christ and end with Christ? Or is it something plus Christ? So there are certain tactics that you'll learn if you learn to share your faith and begin to engage people. You'll discover there are certain tactics that always show up when you're witnessing to people. And when you come into a cult and that claims to be Christian. So these are the kinds of cults that are uh, claiming to be Christian, but in fact are not. The Seventh-day Adventists, the Oneness Pentecostal. The uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they don't like to be called Mormons anymore, but you know what I mean. They have certain tactics that always show up, and there are four of them, and they actually fit quite nicely into the four parts that Grace and I taught on. The first tactic will always be to redefine the problem in some way. Usually, the situation's not as bad as the Bible says it is. The Bible says none are righteous, none are good, none seek after God, and they will say something other than that. The second and third tactics are connected, so I'll deal with them together. The solution and the command is never centered only, and that's the key word, only upon Jesus Christ. They will always diminish Christ in some way, and they will always introduce some sort of good works as part of the solution. No longer do we place our trust in Jesus alone. Now we have to do certain things to be saved. And then the fourth tactic is then to redefine the blessings. We're not saved unto eternal life. Or we're not saved and therefore adopted as children of God. Or, or we're not truly and fully declared righteous in Christ alone. Instead, we get to live on earth forever in some sort of paradise, or we get to be a, a, a god of ourselves, and we get to make millions and millions of spirit babies with our spirit wife, and then become gods of our own universes like the Mormons teach. But these are the tactics you'll always hear, and the more you do it, and the more you talk, the more you realize it's that simple. The words might change, but they're always saying the same thing. 
It always comes down to those four things. So what I want to do uh, for this portion of our time is walk you through the gospel according to the Jehovah's Witnesses. I want you to understand what they say because it's a false gospel. And we're going to go through that outline of the problem, the solution, the command, and the blessings. So first off, they say, what is the problem? Well, the problem is that Adam and Eve sinned. And so I want you to notice that what they say up front, you're going to say, ooh, we agree with that. They teach that Adam and Eve sinned. They were created perfect, but they chose to sin. And in doing so, they brought sin into the world. And because they were the first humans, therefore they became corrupted in sin. And so as they procreated, they had children. The children also were sinners as a result of their sin. Now, in a sense, they're right. I would quibble over a few of those things, but in a sense, they're right at that point. But then with a bit of examination, what happens is you'll find that things will start to unravel. They'll describe the humanity as imperfect or inclined to sin, or prone to errors. These are direct quotes. It's not so much that they deny overt rebellion against God, but it's really downplayed. No longer will you hear them talk about things like, you are a slave to sin, born in sin, under the power of sin, under the, God, the condemnation and wrath of God that abides on you and as ever growing as his wrath flows down from heaven upon you as an object of his wrath. You don't get that sort of stuff. But there's actually two major problems that they have, that you have to understand. It has to do with their sense of sin and humanity. And the, the two ways is this. How do they view the soul and how they view the destiny of an unbeliever, a non-Christian? So with the soul, for them, the human being is a soul. So to be alive is to be a soul. That's all. Keep that in mind. It's just equivalent. If you're alive, you're a living soul. It's not something you have. It's not an aspect of being a human. Simply that he's alive. So you say, okay, so what's the big deal? I'm, I'm not sure. Well, what it means to them is then you're not immortal. There's no aspect about you that is immortal. To be a living soul means nothing other than that you're alive. You have a heart that's beating blood. You have a lungs that are breathing air. And therefore, they will take a passage like Ezekiel 18.4, which many of you probably know by heart, where it says that the soul that sins must die. And they say, see, the soul, because it has sin, must die. And dying is just ceasing to exist, and therefore you're just gone. And they take a, a, a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is nephesh. It's a common word in the Old Testament, uh, which is written in Hebrew. And they translate it as soul, which is the proper translation. It's the normal way to do it. But then they take that word and they limit it to only meaning life. So to have a soul is to have life. So a person is a soul and the soul is a person. They're alive. And so when you are dead, then you're no longer a living soul. You're a dead soul. You're just dead. Unfortunately, though, the, the word doesn't just mean living. It is a word that conveys, though, 
the weakness built into being a creature, or another way of saying it is creaturely weakness. When the Bible actually uses the word nephesh or soul in the Old Testament, it's emphasizing the fact that you're a creature, that you're not God. And so it's emphasizing the weakness that is inherent in you that you, like all parts of creation, need God for your existence. But what they do is they downplay or flat out ignore in some situations the many other words that are used to describe the makeup of a human. The key ones would be the spirit and the heart. That the the idea of a human is he is he is a one who has a spirit and that his heart it's desperately wicked, right? And so using the Old Testament concept there, when the Bible uses the words for heart and for the word for spirit, now they're using those in relationship to God. So the nephesh is used in a very specific way in the Old Testament. It's talking about us as creatures, that we are inherently made by God. But then when the Bible talks about our heart or it talks about our spirit, it's talking about how we're relating to God. And, and, and that relationship. And they, they ignore that. And the reason for that is because they teach that we are not immortal. So the point that the Bible does, and you can listen on our podcast, uh, if you go back and search for the, the doctrine of man, you'll hear where, how we tear apart and show you verse after verse after verse about the various aspects of what makes man man, a human a human. But what's most important is that the Bible teaches that um, we are seen holistically. And that we are seen both body and soul, or body and spirit. We don't want to try to break us down into these little parts. We're seen as a person in the whole, both body and soul. And so then what the Bible says is that when a person dies... The body will die, but the soul, the spirit, that immaterial aspect of what we are does not die. Rather, it goes into hell, Hades, however you might want to call it, or into heaven with the presence, to the presence of God. Just a passage, I'll quote it, don't turn to it, just for the purpose, because we're just going through and I'm introducing you to their gospel. But in 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says that we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So he says that if I am absent from the body, I will be present with the Lord, but the body he's not in anymore. And that is the reality, is that when one of us dies, if we die as a Christian, that we will then die and come into the presence of God, though our body is dead. But that's not the final state. In the resurrection, he will raise us, and the body and soul will come again and be joined together, because that's what we're supposed to be, a body soul. It's that whole makeup of what makes you a person. And you will then be forever with God, or you'll be consigned to hell as a whole person. A lot of people don't understand that. They think that what you have in hell in eternity will be just souls. But in fact, it's the body and soul. Every human being will be raised to life. And every human being will stand before God and be judged. And whether your hope rests in Jesus Christ alone or not is going to be the deciding factor. And all who are not 
shall be consigned to hell. And that is not just the soul, but in fact the body as well. So the whole emphasis of the Bible is not merely the soul of man, but the totality of what makes us human. So both believer and unbeliever will have their bodies raised and they will either have eternal life or damnation as a whole person. That leads to the second error. So they, they teach, no, you're not immortal. When you die, you just die. That's it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The second major error is what do you do when you die? What's your destiny? Well, the Bible would say that if you die outside of Jesus Christ, you go to hell. That's where you go. And they would say, no, that's false. So here's how they do it. It's a little complex, but I'll try to simplify it. They would argue that there is a group of people, select people, 144,000 to be exact, who will be raised just like Jesus was raised. They will be turned into a new kind of spirit creature that is unlike this body. They alone, only those 144,000, will go to heaven and they will, if they show full faith in God's provision for salvation. And that number of 144,000 is filled. It's already done. The rest of the faithful Jehovah's Witnesses, that's everyone else that you know, will be raised back into living souls again. So right now, if they die, they basically just go in the grave and go to sleep. And they don't know of anything going on. They're not aware of anything. But then at the end, they will get raised back up and made alive, and they will live on the earth in a paradise forever, as long as they eat and sleep and drink. So they, they, they're, they're able to live forever unless they don't do the things that keep them alive just like a human being. But what about everyone else who's not a believer? They're not of the 144,000, and they're not one of the faithful, um, meaning a Jehovah's Witness. What about them, meaning like us? Well, you're just destroyed. You just go away. Because you're a soul. And the soul that sins dies, and that means it's just gone. And so there's really nothing that happens to you other than you just go away. In other words, the problem of sin then becomes very downplayed. Because the idea of being under the judgment, <coughs> excuse me, the judgment and eternal wrath of God is not something that's yours. Rather, the real problem to them is that the world is broken, and wouldn't it be nicer to live in a nice place? And if you look at their materials, see, that's what they do in all of their writings. So what's the solution? Well, the best way to do that is just go through the person of Jesus Christ, how they perceive him, because their solution will lie with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And again, that sounds like a Christian. They believe then that Adam and Eve sinned. Oh, wow, that's what we believe. What do you believe is the solution? The death and resurrection of Jesus. Ooh, that's what we believe. But that's not it. The devil is in the details. So the pre-existence of Jesus. Who was Jesus before he was Jesus? Before he became man. Their idea of Jesus as being the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, they would call that blasphemy. That he's not God. The idea of the Trinity is a false teaching. And that Jesus, in fact, was Michael the archangel. And that he was the first thing Jehovah created. 
And only when he was put into the womb of Mary did he become the Son of God. So right off the bat, they reject that he is the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh, that he is the eternal God. Actually, all he is is Michael the archangel. That's pretty cool, but it's not the same. By the way, they also state that the Holy Spirit's just an act of power or force, but he's not a person. So how they view the Son before he was born as a man is already a deficient view. Then what do they say about the birth of Jesus? Well, they say that he was born of a virgin. Again, sounds Christian. But what they actually say, if you then ask them, okay, what do you mean by that? How'd that work? They would say that Jehovah took Michael the archangel and reconstituted him and remade him into a human. So he was a spirit creature, and now they, that what Jehovah did was he, he did stuff, we don't know what, and he made him into a human, a living soul, a nephish, and they stuck, he stuck that in the womb of Mary. And he did that so that he wasn't born of Adam's race and he could be born perfect. The whole point of that is so that he could then make up for Adam's sin. So it's a virgin birth, but certainly not the virgin birth as described in the scripture. Then what about Jesus' death? Why did he die? Well, he died not on the cross. First of all, they'll always go here and you tend to get pulled into an argument that you shouldn't waste your time with. But they'll do this. They, he did not die on a cross. In fact, that's a false teaching of organized religion. But rather, he was killed on what's called a torture stake. But who cares? What you want to know is, for whom did he die and why did he die? Well, what Jesus did, according to the Jehovah's Witness, was buy back or redeem what Adam lost. Through Adam, death came into the world, and so Jesus was made perfect, just like Adam was, and able to keep everything proper and true. He had the same free will Adam did, and therefore, he could live a perfect life like Adam was supposed to, and basically undo that. Now, they say, by doing that, basically what he does is he erases our sin, and now we have the possibility in ourselves to be able to be righteous before God. Do you see how quickly that turns a corner that's in error? Because what Jesus did, now I can earn my salvation. Now I can do the right things. Because Jesus died on that torture stake. And so through his death, now I have a chance. And that's a key word, a chance to have everlasting life on paradise on earth rather than just being annihilated. Because it's only a chance because it's always completely up to you. Now in doing this, what Jesus showed is that Adam could have obeyed God, he just chose not to. And so what God did to Jesus is he rewarded Jesus immortality. You don't get immortality because you're not of the 144,000. Jesus got immortality because he perfectly kept everything. And so then God took Jesus, the man, and he remade him again in his resurrection and made him a Michael the archangel again. So his death made an atonement, a covering for sin. But all that did is open the way for eternal life. It's up to you to gain. 
and secure that eternal life through your works. So that's the death, and that's not the biblical teaching of the death of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus, they say, well, he did rise from the dead. And you're like, boy, that again sounds Christian. But then you say, well, so what do you mean by that? Well, he didn't rise bodily because he died as a living soul, and now his soul is dead. If he rises again in the body, then all he is is a living soul again. What God did was that after he went into the grave, he's just that the body just ceases to exist. And he raised Jesus now back into a spirit creature, Michael the archangel. And so he reformed him. But if Jesus wants to, he can show himself or manifest himself as a physical man with different looks. So it, you'll, you'll say, yeah, but the Bible shows him showing up to different people. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, he can do that, but he doesn't, it's not the same body. It's, 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 he's, it's, he shows up in different looks, different disguises, if you will. Now, this affects the hope of your resurrection. According to the Watchtower Society, then only those 144,000 who have already been chosen, and they say about 9,000 are still alive, only those 144,000 will ever get to be raised up like Jesus was raised. They will also get raised and be turned into spiritual entities, kind of like an angel. They will be in heaven with Jehovah and all the other spirit creatures. The rest of the faithful, meaning you or I, if we were Jehovah's Witnesses, we will be bodily raised to live again the rest of our lives, as long as we eat, drink, and sleep, in a paradise. And the unrighteous, no resurrection. You just die. Well, there is a sort of resurrection. I'll get to it in a second. What about the return of Jesus? That he is returning to judge the living and the dead. Well, the Watchtower Society teaches that Jesus has already returned. In fact, he returned in 1914. He did it invisibly because, of course, he's not a body anymore. He's a spirit creature. So he showed up invisibly, and it was in 1914, and he actually began to rule the earth and establish his kingdom. But he also teaches, that they teach that Armageddon is this great time of, of, of horror and, and battle and, and sickness, and it just will be a terrible time, and that that's coming very soon. And only the faithful Jehovah's Witnesses will be able to survive it. Only if you really, really work hard. But again, the spirit, the return was a spiritual, invisible one. And so no one can see him. The problem is they also know the Bible talks about people seeing Jesus when he returns. And so here's how they answer it. They know that like in Revelation 1-7 it says, Behold, he... Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And they're like, well, it does say that. So they say that what that means is that though he has come invisibly, eventually, in the end, he will allow everyone to see him, but only when he starts to execute all of the ungodly. Literally execute them, kill them. Yet, at the same time, it gets confusing, I know. In 1918, he went back to heaven. So in 1914, he came and started his earthly kingdom, and then invisibly, and then in 1918, he went back into heaven. 
Because then what he started to do was do the task of judging the 144,000. And that's what he's actually doing right now, is he's busy investigating every part of every one of their lives and deciding whether they'll make it actually to the level of a spirit creature. And that's still going on today. And once he's done with that, then he'll come again at the end of the Armageddon and they're judged the wicked who are still alive and he will destroy them. So the problem is not as described as the Bible, that we are under sin and under the wrath of God. The solution they offer is not God coming in human flesh, taking on flesh, dying in our, in our stead, bearing our sin, defeating the power of sin, which is death through his bodily resurrection. That's not the solution. What are we commanded to do then? If you're a Jehovah's Witness, what are the commands? Well, there are several. The first thing is that you have to believe. But the content and the object of your faith is not the death, burial, and resurrection of the biblical Jesus. That's very critical. You must believe in their Jesus. And that's not the true Jesus. You have to believe in an unbiblical Jesus who's really Michael the archangel, not God in human flesh. His death is not the once-for-all payment for sin. He's just simply a very powerful spirit creature who sometimes even gets to be called a god, but never the almighty Jehovah. Instead, the death of Jesus is merely the clearing of the slate clean so that the faithful can come and add good works to that and eventually earn life everlasting on this earth. That's what they mean when they say believe. Second, though, you have to learn what the Bible teaches. It doesn't sound bad. But again, what that means is you have to learn what the Watchtower Society teaches. Because they would teach that if you die and you don't have a proper understanding of Jehovah and all of these teachings, you will still go to hell. Or not hell, you'll, you'll just die and be uh, destroyed. Forgive me. So even though you believe in Jesus that they teach, if you don't have a proper understanding of that Jesus and Jehovah and all the other things, you still end up failing. Third thing you have to do is repent. Again, a, a biblical term, but they mess with it. It's not a change of mind about who is God and, and, and who are we and what is the way of salvation. It's not that change of mind that is actually what repentance means. Rather, it's a, a heart of sorrow. A sadness that shows itself by doing good works for the rest of your life. Repentance means that you now enter into a lifetime of doing good works like they tell you until the end. And then fourth, you have to be baptized. Now that doesn't wash away sin, which is good, but it's required if you want to be given everlasting life. So if you're not baptized by the Watchtower Society, then you're doomed. And it's going to be by immersion, which we would agree, but so. It's also going to be done in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, but not like you and I think. Because they will first say you have to go through a long period of instruction so that you can learn that the Father is Jehovah and that the Son is merely a created Son, but not Jehovah. He's not God. And that the Spirit isn't anyone. It's just a force. And only when you agree with those things and believe them to be absolutely true can you then be baptized. Then after that, you have to obey whatever the watchtower teaches to be done. 
And the hope for you is that since no one else is part of the 144,000 who get to go to heaven, that if you do it good enough, at least you'll get raised up to live eternally on this earth. And finally, he, they would say, you have to be faithful all the way to the end. And the only way to do that is to be in strict obedience to Jesus and loyalty to Jehovah. Well, let me bring this all now together with the blessings. This gets a little crazy again, but I'll deal with it briefly. What do you get out of all this? So you do all the things they say, you believe all of that. What's, what's in it for you? I mean, is there any blessings that come with this? Is there anything that we can have hope in and endure? Well, if you're the 144,000, which you're not, but if you were, then as long as they get investigated by Jesus, which is what he's doing up in heaven, and they're found faithful, then this is what they get. They get that to be presently justified, declared righteous, as long as they keep that righteous status. They're also anointed as priests. They're set aside for Jehovah's purposes. If they stay faithful all the way to the death, then they will be born again. Only Jesus was born again. And only the 144,000 get born again because born again means being made into a new spirit creature. And then they will become those spirit creatures. And finally, they will rule in heaven with Jehovah and Jesus, who is really Michael, the archangel. So that's what they, their blessings. For the rest, they're of the earth. So the normal average Jehovah's Witness. They're not destined for a spiritual heavenly existence. They do not have anything called a new birth or regeneration. They have to earn their salvation. They have no expectation of anything that applies to that special class of 144,000. However, if they're able to earn their salvation, then during the millennium age, the thousand years uh, that's coming, they will get to help Jesus rule on earth but during that time, if they still fail, then they lose. So even after they're raised back up to become a living soul again uh, and rule with Jesus on earth, they can still mess up during that thousand years. What about everyone else? Well, the rest of humanity do get raised again. So if you die today, when the thousand years comes, you'll get resurrected to live through that thousand years but you're raised in whatever condition you're in when you die. Am I, are you exhausted yet? I'm exhausted. Just That's my second time through it. This is just exhausting. But you get raised back up, but you're raised back in the same condition you were when you died. So you were a drunkard, well, then you get raised up already a drunkard or a thief or whatever. And then from there, you got a thousand years. If you can fix things, you make it. But if you don't, you just get annihilated. That's their gospel. And the, beloved, that's a gospel that damns. So what's the core issue? Well, at the core is a false understanding of God. This is just like Islam. Many will say that the, uh, the Muslim believes in the same God of the Bible, they, the one true God. They call him Allah, but that's no big deal. That's false. It's a big deal. And it's an evil lie to say otherwise, but it's common. 
Here, many people will say, well, at least they believe in one God, Jehovah, and, and we just got to fix a few details. No, it's not just a few details. They need to understand who God is. So this whole purpose of this whole series has been not just to bang on people and, and mock them. In no way. It's so that you can learn how to share your faith with these people. First of all, know the gospel. Know those four parts. Have them written down so that you can always go back to them. What is the problem, the solution, the commands and blessing? Get them to the point that they come off your tongue easy. And then understand that when you deal with certain people, like the uh, Muslim from last week, or the Roman Catholic, or here, the Jehovah's Witness, that you have the ability to bring to them the Word of God. You need to point them to the true God. So this is where you have to go if you're going to witness to Jehovah's Witness. Don't get sucked into whether it was a torture stake or not, or who's 144,000, who cares? Get them to the gospel. And if they come to faith through the gospel, then everything else gets taken care of. And so myself, I actually kept a page in the back of my Bible that was reserved only for Jehovah's Witnesses. And you have it in your notes, on the very last page, you actually have a, a picture of my last page of my old Bible, and that is what I designed so that every time they came in up to our house and knocked and said, hello, we are here with Jehovah's Witnesses, and we want to talk to you about wouldn't it be wonderful to live a life eternal in a world that's a paradise? I would say, come on in and have a seat, and i go get my Bible and we do a Bible study together. But I'm not like, oh my gosh, what did Pastor Matt say? I don't even... I got them down. I wrote them down. And I'm like, glad you asked. And we do what we do. You have to have a solid grasp, of beloved, of what's theology proper, which is the doctrine of God. You should listen again to our podcast and go back through the ones that talk about the person of God, the doctrine of God. Take notes in your Bible. This is why we talk so often about having a physical Bible, not an electronic Bible. Nothing wrong with the electronic for when you're reading or something, but when you're trying to talk to somebody, you need something physical that you can have a little note that says, now turn to this verse, now turn to this, and that you've got certain things circled so that you can guide the people through the gospel. The hard reality is that most people are incapable of answering a Jehovah's Witness because they've never been as diligent as a Jehovah's Witness has in learning their lies. Now what you want to do when a Jehovah's Witness comes knocking is you want to challenge them with their Bible. Now they have, if you didn't know, a translation called the New World Translation. It's a terrible translation. It's not even really a translation, but it's what they use. And you can say, well, and and again, you go down the big old road of arguing like you know what you're talking about and it doesn't ever get anywhere. Listen, a Jehovah's Witness is one thing they have going for them is they have a strong commitment to the Bible. It's a bad translation, but they are Bible students. Not Christians, but they are Bible students. So get your Bible. And then when they say, well, that is not a a real good translation, we prefer ours, you can say, well, that's nice, this is what I use. 
And by the way, I've been to your website, so now you all have to go to the website and verify so that you're not lying. And you can say, I've been to your website, and you quote many other versions, not just the New World Translation, so I'm going to use mine, you can use yours. And they'll, they'll agree to that, okay? Because they're excited. They're actually able to lead you into Jehovah's ways. But you are a faithful student, and you got the back of your Bible that you wrote stuff in. And now you can begin to work through these things. So, with that in mind, we're going to look at just some passages. Not all of the passages can be dealt with. I purposely put more than I thought I would have time. But we're going to look at certain things, and I'll show you how you would work with a Jehovah's Witness. Is that fair? So just open your Bible to Genesis 1, 26, and we'll start there. So the first thing is, I, I'm not going to just talk about Jesus. I, I want to talk about the person of God. And, and if Jesus is not God, and he's just this good guy, then that's not, you don't have faith in the true gospel. So you got to have you have to have things destroyed in your mind. And for them, the idea that the, the Trinity is, is just a horrible blasphemy. So the first place I always will take them to is Genesis 1.26. And so let's turn there. And I'm going to read it. I'm just going to make some observations here. And this is how I would talk to them. Now, I started doing this before I was trained in Greek and Hebrew. So there's no reason why you can't do these things either, Okay. Um, it says, then God said what? Let what? Us. Circle that. You should have that circled. God said, let us make man in our circle image according to our likeness, and then so that they will have dominion, etc. Who's the us? That's what you want to ask them. Who's the us? God's talking here. So who's the us? Now they'll say, well, that's Michael the archangel. Okay, can you show me a verse anywhere in the Bible that says that Michael the archangel was part of that us? No, they can't because it doesn't exist. But here's the next thing you want to know is, what is God doing? And the answer is, he's making man how? In his image. It's just right there, right? This is not even hard. It's right there. And so you say, so in whose image is mankind made? And all you care, don't let them keep talking. Just get them to say in the image of God. That's right. That's right. But it says, let us make man in our image. What's up with that? Now, again, they'll try to say, well, Michael, that's Michael the archangel. No. Show me one verse where Michael the archangel was made in the image of God. Nowhere does it say that. But God is saying, let us make man in our image. So whatever this is, it's got to end up with an image of God. And nowhere does the Bible ever say anything or anyone was made in the image of God but mankind. So right there, you can start to show them, look, we've we, we got to deal with this us. We don't get to just make that go away by a quick statement. Now, here's the interesting thing, and you should note this in your Bible. In verse 26, it says, let us, that's plural, right? We can figure that out even when we don't know grammar good. Let us, plural, make man in our singular image. Not multiple images, but one image. So the us have one image. 
And so here you already have the beginnings right away of a plurality with a singularity attached to it, of, of the plural God, single God, because it's in his single image. And again, let us make him according to our plural, single likeness. Then notice what verse 27 says. And so now it says what happened. And God created man in what? In his single image. So which one was it? It's both. And this is how the Bible will deal with it. Is it will talk about God both in a plurality and singularity with the greatest of ease and absolutely no explanation. So let me show you another passage that it does that just to show you. And there's many others, but just for time. Chapter 3, verse 22 It says, then Jehovah God, or Yahweh God, or the Lord God, depending on what your translation has, says, behold, the man has become like one of us again. God's talking to himself, and he says, man has become like us, knowing good from evil. Again, just this casual plurality going on. But go over now to Isaiah, way back into Isaiah, in chapter 6, verse 8. Here, you have to learn something about parallelisms. Hebrew language loves parallelisms, and most of the Old Testament is written in them. So all of your poetry, all of your prophets, almost all of that is in parallel structure. And in Isaiah 6, verse 8, we have that wonderful vision of, of seeing uh, Yahweh seated high above on the throne. you got the angels twirling around them. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in verse 8, he says, I heard the voice of the Lord, or Yahweh, saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And you say, okay, so what? Well, first of all, we have the us, right? So the Lord wants to know who's going to go for us, who will be our emissary. But here's the issue is, this is actually called a parallel structure. The whom shall I send is the first line. The second line to this parallel structure is, now I lost it, who will go for us. And in between there is that word and. And when you're learning parallel structure, you learn to identify certain markers. And and this thing is called a synonymous parallelism because it's got the word and. Okay, and I actually am going to teach a course on this. It's a very simple thing. I taught uh, Taylor it in like an hour and a half a couple days ago. Um, But I'll teach it to you, and you guys can then read Proverbs better than you ever did before. And it's very easy. But here's what is important. In a synonymous parallelism, it is two lines broken by the word and. And the first line and the second line mean the same thing. So now with that knowledge, look at it again. Whom shall who? I, singular, send, is saying the same thing as who shall go for us, plural. They're the same thing. The exact same thing. Nothing different. Bring them to that. Make them and say, this is what's going on here. How about this? Um, 46 minutes in. Jeremiah 23. We didn't do that last 
sermon, so I'll do it this time. Jeremiah 23, 5 5 through 6. Oh yeah, I did this. So in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, or the Lord, when I will raise up for David, that's talking about King David, a righteous branch, and he's talking about an offspring, and he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land, and in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called. What is his name? Yahweh, or the Lord. God doesn't share his name, ever. So we have Yahweh speaking, we have God speaking, he's going to raise up this king like David, Israel's going to get saved at that point, and what is his name? Yahweh. But it's Yahweh raising up Yahweh. How does that work? Because of the plurality in the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Let's go to uh, Genesis 16. We'll talk about this guy called the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is actually just pre-incarnate Jesus. He's the son. Um, And it's really fascinating to look up that phrase, angel of the Lord, in the many passages. But we'll just look at this one. Genesis 16, 7 through 13. I'm going to skip over some of the details because they're not important to the point. But this is a story of Hagar. Hagar was the servant of Sarai. At that point, she was known as Sarai, but then later Sarah. And they hadn't had a baby yet. Abraham, or now at this point known as Abram, they hadn't had their baby that God promised. And so they started thinking, well, maybe it's up to us to figure out how we're going to do this. So like all things, when we decide we're going to help God out, we screw it up. And so they're like, I know, what I'll do is I'll give you my servant, Hagar, and she can get pregnant in my name, and then that will count. So that's exactly what happened. Then the magic happens, and now Sarah can't stand Hagar, and hates her, and drives her out from the camp, and she's now alone in the wilderness, pregnant and destitute, and she will die. So it's a sucky situation. That's a technical theological term, um, is all in the Hebrew, uh, for, for poor Hagar. So here we have then the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh, finds her by a string of water, and he says, Hagar, Sarai's servant woman, where have you come from? Where are you going? And she says, I'm running from Sarah. And then the angel of the Lord says, return to your mistress and humble yourself. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, so you should underline each time, angel of the Lord or angel of Yahweh, I will greatly multiply your seed. So the angel's going to do this. I will multiply your seed. There'll be too many to be counted. And then the angel of Yahweh said to her, behold, you are with child. You're going to bear a son. His name's going to be Ishmael, and he's going to be a wild dude. He's actually the, uh, the, the beginning of the Arab race, if you didn't know. But then notice what verse 13 says. Then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. Not the angel of Yahweh. Now the Bible switches to she called 
the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. So who's talking to her? Yahweh or the angel of Yahweh? It's the same person. The angel of Yahweh is where God appears to us before Christ. Christ took on, is the second person of the Trinity. He took on flesh and we beheld him, the glory of the only begotten. Prior to his birth and incarnation, whenever he appears, he appears as the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord. That is the pre-incarnate Christ. And what you have there is not just that he is called the angel of the Lord, but he is in fact Yahweh himself. Another wonderful passage that you can take them to. Let's go to Isaiah 48. Should have told you to keep your finger there. Isaiah 48, verse What you have to do is ask this question. This is where you take a little notes in your margin. You have to ask, who is the me in the Bible, in this verse? Draw near to who? Me. Hear this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. Now, Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. So you have to figure out who is the me. Because who sent me in that very last line? The Lord Yahweh, or Lord God. Not only did he send me, but he sent what else? The Spirit. Okay? So it's very important that we know who the me is. And what you have to do is you're going to have to go backward. You know this. You have to find what's called the antecedent. So... It's actually better to take them all the way up to verse 1 and work through the first 15 verses. And what you do is you ask the Jehovah's Witness, tell me who's talking, tell me who's talking, until you get back to the verse. And the key verses will be in verse like verse 2. And they call, for they call themselves after the holy city and are supported by God, the God of Israel, Yahweh of hosts is his name. So we, we, we got... He's here, he, we're talking about Yahweh. He's like, I, and, and what did Yahweh say? I declared the former things long ago. Well, skip down to verse 5. So we have Yahweh talking. Verse 5, therefore I declared them to you long ago. Before they happened, I caused them to be heard by you, lest you say my idol has done them and my graven image and my molten image. So we still have the Yahweh talking. Uh, then verse 9, for the sake of my name, the only one that ever says that is Yahweh. For the sake of my name, I did this. Then go down to verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. How can my name be profaned and my glory? I will not give another. Again, that is reserved for Yahweh alone. Verse 12. Hear me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. Who called Israel? Yahweh called Israel. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. So we definitely got Yahweh here talking. Verse 13, and also my hand founded the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand together. And you just follow it all the way back down to verse 16. And he continues and says, draw near to me. Who is me? 
Yahweh. But who sent him? Last line, verse 16. Yahweh. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Well, that's not your problem. Uh, <laughs> that's what it is. Yahweh is talking, and yet he talks about Yahweh God sending him and the Spirit. And why? Because the Bible casually and, and fully without any explanation will talk about God singularly and then in a plurality together. What are we doing there? We're trying to just show them, look, you are so bent on trying to make Jehovah God one single alone and that therefore the Son and the Spirit are not God and you can't do that because that's not how the Bible deals with them. These are just examples. I'm not trying to win anything here. Let's go to one last verse and we'll spend our time there because it's the one that you'll always take them to and they'll always be ready for you. Okay? And that is in John 1.1. And they will say, John 1.1, most of you have it memorized, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God, and the Word was God. Right. And they'll say, no. No, 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 you don't know Greek. If you knew Greek, you'd know what that was. And they'll say, what it actually says is, and the Word was what? A God. And they'll say, the reason... Mr. Henry, is that in the Greek, there's no article. If you know your grammar even a little bit, an article is like the, right? And so you have an indefinite article in English, and that's the word a, right? And so they say, because there is no the in the Greek, we should translate it as a God. And you're like, oh, I don't know Greek. Well, they don't either. Um, You know, they don't. Uh, and so it's really fun when you know Greek because then you do know Greek and you mess with them. But, um, but you don't have to know Greek if you're taking notes. Now listen, let's just not worry right now about how bad their grammar is and let's just play their game. Say, okay, so if it doesn't have the article, then it means a god. Yes, yes, you get it. Oh, that's helpful. Okay, so then in verse 12, who's talking? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of who? Okay, so who is that? And they'll say, well, that's Jehovah. But there's no article in the Greek. So he, they had to translate that according to you, it has to be that they gave him right to become children of a God. In fact, back in verse 6, there was a man having been sent from God, but there's no article in the Greek there either. And you could actually print out the Greek, and I'll show you where the articles is, and you can circle them and keep them stuffed in your Bible and show them, see, there it is. And it, they would say, no, it's God. No, it's a God, according to you. Verse 13, a God. Verse 18, a God. In fact, you can play this game all the way through the New Testament and show them that their whole theology falls apart on their insistence that verse 1 can't mean that the word was God because that's what it says. But let me explain to you just briefly, there will be a test following, um, how Greek grammar works with regard to the articles. When you have a Greek noun and it gives the article, it is emphasizing identity. When the Greek 
language gives you no article. It's emphasizing essence or quality. So when I say, give me the chair, I am, I'm thinking of a specific chair. Okay, In fact, you would say which chair then, because you want the chair. Greek doesn't have a chair. It would just simply say, give me that which is by quality or essence a chair. So anything that would qualify as chair works at that point. So now let me, and there's another Greek preposition here. Uh, it was with God in, in the Greek. It's a Greek word called pros. It, it means face to face. It's an intimate, very intimate preposition. So here, here's how you would translate this if you really want to be very literal. In the beginning was the word, and the word was face to face with, quote unquote, the God, okay? And the word was by quality or essence, God. It is actually an extremely powerful statement that the word is God. But he's not the God. He is, by, because the God is the Father, and so... Th- in some way, the writer has to make a distinction between the Father and the Son, or in this case, the Word. And so by doing that, he then takes the, uses no article and says, but he too is by quality God. He's just like what we looked at in um, Isaiah 48. Yahweh sends who? Yahweh. And you're like, How's that work? Well, it's the same way that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face-to-face with God, so making them separate with Him, and yet, by essence, He is, in fact, God. And all you're showing them is, look, the Scripture over and over and over and over again shows them. Now, if they reject that, they reject it, but at least you're giving them the truth. Does that make sense? All right, well, we're all done here. Let me, let, that doesn't mean you shut down and you start putting stuff away. Give me 30 seconds. We don't have enough time to look at the many passages, but that's not my purpose. Um, my purpose is to show you that the gospel they give is a damning gospel. And I want to show you that you can engage them. You don't have to be afraid of them, and you don't have to mock them. You need to show them. I would encourage you to re-listen to the series I did on the Trinity. Um, you can find that on our website under resources. Don't go to sermons. Go to resources and then archive sermons. And that will take you to my old, old sermons. And find the whole series on the Trinity. And I beat this baby to death. I think it's like 13 sermons, okay? But we'll, I deal with this. Here's your takeaway, though, for you. The Gospel preached by the Jehovah's Witnesses is simply a soul-damning gospel, and it saves no one. It's premised off of a false understanding of who God is. It's premised off of a false understanding of what Jesus did and who He is. It's premised off false commands that give you no hope. And it's premised off of false blessings that are cheap, absolutely cheap, compared to the inexhaustible blessings given to God, by God through Christ. So what do you do? Don't look at those Jehovah's Witnesses as enemies and don't think they're just a little off, but rather show them compassion, show them love, and show them 
the right way. Show them the gospel. That is all we care about in this church is that you get to the point that you have a burden that you know the gospel and you want to tell people that gospel. And all we're showing you today is you can share that gospel to a Jehovah's Witness and you don't have to be intimidated in the least. Let's pray. So Father, I do pray that you would bless these people, that you would cause their hearts to be knit to you, to those here who are here merely because they must be here and they have no desire because they have no life in them. I pray that you would bring conviction by the Spirit upon them, that they would see their sinful state, that they would see the hope provided in Christ alone, that they would have someone faithful to point them to Jesus Christ and they would find life. For the rest, Father, that we would be found diligent to study and show ourselves approved, that we'd be eager to share the gospel, unafraid of the gospel, knowing that in the gospel is your power for salvation. So bless these people as they go home. Give them much rest, but give them much hope. I also ask that you might be so kind as to bring into their contact over the next week or so a Jehovah's Witness so they can practice. In your son's holy name, amen.